This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On July 24th, 1974, the infamous drug cartel boss Federico Gomez Carrasco lay siege to the third floor library of the Walls Unit, the oldest prison in Texas. When we left prison guard Bobby Hurd, you know, I'm fixing to die. He was hiding in the rafters of the prison library. Bobby Hurd was a young guy, a big guy. He also had a wife and little kids back home. So I was the only officer up there. I was close to the attic, so I went to the attic to try to get out, and I couldn't. He just crawled up and threw that on ceiling. When the siege began, Fred Carrasco and his two sidekicks, Rudy Dominguez and Ignacio Cuevas, gave the other inmates a choice. They could leave the library now or stay and become hostages. Nearly all the inmates got the heck out of there. Only five remained. One of them was Steve Robertson. Steve decided to stick around and enjoy the fun. I heard uh, Carrasco uh, tell Dominguez go up there and kill him. If he don't come down, kill him. Uh, I knew he was up there, and they knew he was up there. Carrasco called out to Bobby Hurd. If you don't come down, I'm going to come up and kill you. And he blasted a shot off into the ceiling. That's Dr. Glennon Johnson, the prison education director. Steve Robertson grabbed Carrasco's walking cane and started poking holes in the ceiling, hoping to shake Hurd loose from his hiding place. Carrasco didn't want to leave the civilian hostages in the same spot for too long. This guy was clever. He reasoned that if he kept shuffling the hostages from one location to another, the guards couldn't exactly blast their way into the library for fear of risking the civilians' lives on the other side of the wall. During this 30 or 40 minute interval, he moved us from one corner of the library over to what we call the, what's the rip room. He left us there about 30 minutes, and he moved us in another corner. So we had been in three different positions in, in the library park by the, at this time. He finally, well, during one of those intervals, they had discovered Mr. Hurd. When they discovered Mr. Hurd, then he had taken his shirt off. <clears throat> then he came down, I think he just, uh, Tarzan-type, swung down from some of the rafters and came down with his hands up and they proceeded to put him into one of the chairs. And uh, Dominguez made a, a, a motion in the direction of, with his gun and said something in Spanish that I didn't understand, but Carrasco made it clear, no, in Spanish I understood that much. And it appeared that Carrasco wanted to shoot Hurd at that moment. They sat him down in a chair and, tie, and tied his hands tied his feet together and then Carrasco decided that wasn't satisfactory and he decided to get some of these inmates that, that were over in the typing class uh, to pick Hurd up and bodily and set him over in front of the two doors. The chair fell apart and they put him back together and finally got Bobby Hurd seated in front of the door. Bobby Hurd had it bad. Carrasco was using him as a human shield in front of the broken glass door at the entrance to the library. After Hurd was in the chair for a while, Carrasco swapped it for a table on top of a filing cabinet. And he put Mr. Hurd upon that table. 
blindfolded him, handcuffed him, and taped his feet together. And Mr. Hurd had been there three hours, four hours or so. And then he decided he was going to take uh, the rest of the men hostages one at a time and take Hurd off and then let us go sit up there. He chose um, Jack um, Branch. Chose Jack Branch to be the second one. Jack Branch had taught at the Walls unit for less than one month when he was taken captive. Jack is a mild-mannered guy. By a sheer misunderstanding, he was already on Carrasco's bad side. And he had us to call our loved ones. And, and everybody did that. I called my wife. He let me call my wife. And uh, I talked to her. And at the same time, we had, had somebody listening. So I was telling her, uh, I said, uh, be sure to pick up the keys. And he thought there was something funny going on. He was listening. Uh, and he asked, asked me, uh, what were you ask, asking her about the keys and all that? We had another place. We did some cleaning to make a little extra money. I was just telling her about that. And they, they didn't like what I was saying to them. Thought it was something that I had no business saying. They got mad at me, I guess. Carrasco? was paranoid. He worried that Jack was tipping off his wife, Betty, to a secret key that would open a locked door to the library. Really, Jack was just making small talk. Well, you know, that was the first day. And we were, everybody was scared, couldn't hardly, didn't know what to talk about hardly. And I told him, take care and, uh, and take care of Ray, because Ray was... Uh, that would be there with her. No, I should be home soon. Jack would not be coming home soon. The 1974 Huntsville prison siege, the longest hostage crisis in the history of U.S. prisons, was just beginning. From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Wes Ferguson. This is Standoff. Taking me down to Huntsville I'm bringing in they caught me on a caper that I planned for days And proved everything I'd done I'm on my way to Huntsville But I'm looking for a chance to run My hands don't fit no chopping Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. This is chapter four. Both sides dig in. Jack Branch was a stern dad. He could be hard on Ray, his only child. That was made abundantly clear when Jack taught Ray in the sixth grade. It wasn't fun, I tell you. Couldn't get away with anything. Yeah, he made an example out of me. 
and Huntsville, nestled among the lakes and lush forests of southeast Texas, was not the easiest place for Ray to grow up. I'm allergic to grass and trees, okay? So that should tell you it was kind of miserable growing up here, sneezing every hay fever season and, you know, not hay fever season, I had asthma. So <laughs> it, was, it was rough. He took comfort in music. He loved to play the drums. Most of my friends were musicians, but I was in a rock band and a funk band. Ray had just finished the ninth grade when the siege began. He was home alone when the phone rang. It was a man from prison. He said something like, there's been an incident up here. You know, at that age, I was like, an incident, so I thought the worst, obviously. So, because they, they really weren't, weren't given a lot of information. It was scary, because I, you know, they called and no one was home but me. And uh, my mother hadn't got off of work. So as soon as she drove up the thing, I ran out and I told her something's happened up at the prison and we got to get up there as soon as we can. I just remember we, tires were squealing out, the, <laughs> out of the driveway, so hoofed it up there. My dad has a sister that lives in town and her son was with me. They had met us up there at the, where the administration building is, you know. You know, there were other people from other, the other family members were there. So we were all in this like a small little lobby there in the, in the uh, administration building. They said there was a hostage situation in there. And they weren't, you know, too uh, forthcoming with the information, as far as I remember. At first, young Ray was really worried about the family's huge backyard garden. The family had just built a house on five acres north of town. Ray didn't want to take over gardening duties from his dad. I'm like, wow, you know, we had just moved out here. I'm like, I hope nothing happens to him. Because I, you know, it's too much responsibility. For me, that's what I was thinking. Right, right there, I, I, you know. Because it was a lot. And then you obviously think you hope nothing happens to your dad and stuff. But the first thing I thought about is, like, I can't take care of all this stuff. I hope nothing happens, and hope nothing has happened, but I figure if they had, you know, if something had happened, they would have told us on the phone and not had us coming up there and stuff to, you know, just sit around. And then that's what it ended up being, that we just came up there and sat around. They told us what happened, and, you know, they assured us they had everything under control like they do, you know. You know, like you see on the TV, on the soap opera or something, that they assure you and Try to take your fears away. Did that give you any assurance? No. Why not? Uh, just general untrustworthiness of the prison. I mean, you know. Because, you know, in there, you, you really don't know what's going on with people in a confined situation. They could snap at any moment, man. Never thought much further than that the first couple of days. We were just worried about my dad. Ray's mom, Betty, was just as upset as you might expect. She was just a nervous wreck. She was a basket case. My aunt, too, the same way. My cousin, you know, we were kind of young then, so we, it wasn't that we didn't take it seriously, but you know how teenagers are, you know, they're kind of flippant. You have to try to find some humor in a situation like that, so we would still joke around and, you know. But it was pretty dire <laughs> from, from the get-go, you know. By then, 
the news footage was already rolling. Yeah, and you know, they had the TV on in there and stuff, and you know, everybody was watching the news and stuff, and sometimes we would know more about what was going on from watching the news than what they were telling us. And, and that's kind of typical, because, you know, you've seen these hostage shows on hostage movies on TV, you know, they kind of parse out the information. You're kind of left to your own devices. Of course, that's what I'm saying. We, my cousin and I, what if this happens? What if that? What if this happens? What, you know, but they were just giving us reassurances that, oh, you know, they got the thing under control. And then, so for that one time when they had him up on that file cabinet, then, then I got nervous, you know. I got nervous then for sure. Ray, only 15 years old, had been worried about the chores. The true gravity of the situation did not set in until he saw his dad in front of those library glass doors. Like Bobby heard before him, Jack Branch was being used as a human shield. He ends up being the next target. The next day, it was in the paper. They showed, it, they showed his silhouette on top of that uh, filing cabinet tied up. And, you know, you could, you could see, oh, you know, because his head is a, has a uh, distinct look about it, you know. I could tell that was him, you know, from the, from the grainy photo. Yeah, it was horrible. I mean, that whole thing was, you know, it was horrible, man. I'm, I just, you know, my cousin and I, we just tried to make the best of it, cracking jokes and being what, you know, doing what teenagers do eating hamburgers every day. That's, you know, we just kind of got lost in being a teenager. And he would say, man, what if something happens to your dad? We, we don't want to think about that. You know, we hope for the best. I mean, you know, this is a sleepy little town and that was the biggest news <laughs> they had had since I was alive, other than the prison rodeo. <laughs> oh yeah, the rodeo. The Texas Prison Rodeo in Huntsville used to be the biggest sporting event in the whole state of Texas. The rodeo was founded way back in 1931 by the prison manager. He originally had that rodeo as an idea as a relief for the, the inmates and the staff after getting all the crops gathered. He made an announcement about it. Townspeople did show up, many more than he had assumed. And That's an understatement from Jim Willett who was a young guard during Carrasco's siege in 1974 and later became the Warden of the Walls. In fact, the prison rodeo quickly became the most popular sporting event in the entire state of Texas. Crowds flocked from all around to watch inmates trying to hang on to a buckenbronk or snorting mad bull for eight long seconds. The inmates who didn't participate in the rodeo also loved to attend. It was a treat to see, quote, free world people their term for the folks who weren't locked up with them. The stands were filled with a whopping 50,000 spectators by the time of the final rodeo in 1986. After that, the rodeo was canceled, mostly for liability reasons. The Texas prison rodeo may be long gone, but Huntsville has other things going for it. Huntsville is a perfect example of where the arts and historical preservation and just pride in community all comes together to attract tourists. The eyes of Texas are upon. Well, this is Texas.
I would say that Huntsville is basically a beautiful, little quiet East Texas town that is largely dependent on um, jobs from the state of Texas. Because with the five prisons we have here in Huntsville, we're one of the oldest towns in Texas and there's just a lot of history here. We have, this was the home of Texas' most famous resident, Sam Houston. It's just a neat little place. At that time, the employees of the Texas prison system were very tight-knit bunch of people. Everybody was a family. It just was real comfortable. Wasn't the ideal job. I didn't, I didn't care much for the job back then. I remember telling people, even back when I made rank and was working there, that, you know, this is something I do eight hours a day to have fun the other 16 hours a day. It allows me to do that. You had a bunch of inmates here that were just trying to do their time and get by. And you had officers over here that nearly all of them were trying to do a good job and go home for the day. And you had a few rotten apples in each bunch. And that's basically how life was at the prison back then on both sides of, of, of the fence. And mostly people were just trying to get by and do a good job. Whether they, The inmates, they went to work to do a good job. We all knew each other. I mean, most of the officers knew the inmates and uh, the inmates knew the officers. But everybody got along good and, and it wasn't a bad place to be if you were an inmate. I mean, you had everything you wanted, really. If you, if you got to be locked up, that was a decent place to be. Good food, beans, cornbread, some kind of meat, uh, good vegetables, uh, milk, water. I mean, they, good rolls or biscuits, whatever they were. They had good meals every day. After his run as the warden, Jim Willett became the director of the Texas Prison Museum, just a few miles up the road from the Walls Unit. The museum is surprisingly popular. A lot of people are interested in, about prisons. I think number one would be the electric chair, uh, maybe stuff about the rodeo, the Carrasco incident. Uh, we have some stuff about Bonnie and Clyde. Lord, I don't think they'll ever go away. Uh, I, it's unbelievable to me. You'll get high school kids in here. They know who Bonnie and Clyde is. And if you look back at that era of the, of the outlaw, there were so many other outlaws that robbed banks or whatever for so much more money than Bonnie and Clyde ever got. Uh, it's just kind of amusing sometimes, kind of an oddball thing, but that's a big draw to, with some people. Uh, we have the original Texas electric chair here, and we actually have, including all the equipment, even the generator, but uh, we have the electric chair on display and, and the uh, control panels that would have controlled the juice between the generators and the electric chair on display. Um, 361 men were put to death in the chair. Jim Willett was 24 years old, a college student working the evening shift as a prison guard. Out of the blue, Carrasco is laying siege to the library. Nobody really knows what's going on other than there's some convicts up there with a gun, at least one gun. And... I was shocked because the idea of an inmate being able to get an, a gun into that prison had never crossed my mind. And I was just shocked that that was the case. And uh, after going through a little bit of that, I, uh, I remember thinking to myself, boy, when I graduate, I am going to find myself some other line of work. Because <laughs> uh, it was scary. Well, nobody inside the prison carries a gun or any kind of weapon like that. Because uh, you don't want to take a chance on the inmate getting it away from you and then you'd be in real trouble. And there's a lot more of them than there are staff. 
Willett knew pretty much all the prison inmates, but Carrasco hadn't stood out from the crowd. He was just another inmate, and he, and he used a, a walking cane. You would see him because he worked in the chapel, so he's, the chapel's right there on the yard. You were going to see him coming to work, leaving work, going to the chapel, whatever, you know. But for those of us who worked there, when they said his name, we knew who, who he was, but he wasn't anybody different from Joe Blow. I mean, I wasn't aware that he was a kingpin drug guy, you know. Back inside the library, Carrasco upped the stakes. He told the warden, Hal Husbands, that he was going to shoot prison guard Bobby Hurd if the warden didn't meet his demands. That's when Carrasco's henchman, Rudy Dominguez, decided to take matters into his own hands. Fred was talking over the phone, and he just, Rudy was standing there, and he just raised the gun just slightly like this and fired two shots. Well, they couldn't have missed Hurd's head more than that much, you know, and they just went into the wall. And, of course, Hurd was doing a great amount of pleading and begging and so forth and told him he was the biggest chicken up there, you know, they, they killed him, they weren't killing much. And uh, so that was a very harrowing experience. Here's Aileen House, one of the library hostages. Oh, I'm director of library services. Director of library. Now, I have taught 27 years in the public schools, and I felt safer working up here than I did in the public schools. I, they were, you just can't imagine how bad the schools are. Aileen would go on to write a book titled The Carrasco Tragedy, 11 Days of Terror in the Huntsville Prison. Fred, he was, he was the mastermind. Well, thank God he was. Even though he, he was a mad dog, he still had in, some intelligence. The other two didn't have any. And they had herded all of us around a table in the back south corner of the library where we stayed practically all the time. And Mr. Johnson, uh, that afternoon, began to have this appearance of it's kind of a gray clay or something, you know. And, that's Dr. Glennon Johnson, the prison director of education and recreation. At 51 years old, with curly hair, wrinkles down his cheeks, and a pair of bifocal glasses, he was in bad shape, surely from stress. I asked him if he was ill, and he finally went to the bathroom and vomited and came back, and he still had this horrible look. Well, as soon as he had gotten back from that, they put him in the window, in the door. And he was t his legs were taped and his, he was handcuffed. Carrasco and the other captors had pulled down Jack Branch from the filing cabinet in front of the glass doors. Now it was Dr. Johnson's turn to be the human shield. Within minutes, librarian hostage Linda Woodman went to check on Dr. Johnson in the doorway. Linda Woodman noticed him holding his chest with his hands, you know, and said he just looked horrible. And she asked him if he was all right, and he says, I, I have indigestion or something. He says, I, I just, I, I'm just hurting. So she told Fred that she thought he needed to come down and let somebody else get up there. And that's when he passed out with a yeah. heart attack. I've never seen anyone have one. It was, that was a bad experience. Quavus was standing on the south side of the door and had his pistol pointed in my direction when they put the blindfold on the house. Carrasco was on the north side, over close to the desk. 
in with his pistol in hand. Now, I sat there for approximately 30 minutes, I, I guess, and things started happening in my chest region, and I practically passed out, slumped over on the table, and then they did come and pick me up, carried me back in the corner, they being some of the some of the other inmates. Carrasco called for some of the other inmates to come and get me, and then two of the hostages came and helped. I never did completely blank out, but uh, the pain was tremendously severe, and they carried me over in the corner on the west side of the library where they had the inmates at this time. And Father O'Brien, I believe, or someone else was at the phone, Carrasco told them to call the hospital. And they did send somebody over with a stretcher, and I was put on the stretcher and allowed to go out the door. And then from there I was transferred to the hospital. Dr. Glennon Johnson had been lying on the floor, gasping for air. Now he was being whisked away from the library the first hostage to escape the 1974 Huntsville prison siege. Here's Warden Hal Husbands, interviewed for the book, 11 Days in Hell. Well, I don't know what he had, but I, th- I just think he was smart enough to get out of there. He was, in a, in a, he was in a hell of a spot and he knew it. And he knew he wasn't no hero. And he, he just... I think he outsmarted to tell you the truth about everybody. I don't think he had a damn thing wrong with him. I don't think he had a damn thing wrong with him, except for a strong urge to get the hell away from Federico Gomez Carrasco. I think he would have shot all inmates and everyone in that library if, if he had felt that that would have been uh, the proper thing for him to do. Glennon Johnson spent the night in the hospital and was released the very next day he would not be the last hostage to make a daring escape. So, it's still the first day of the siege. After Glennon Johnson's health scare, we're down to 11 civilian hostages. You've heard from a few of these folks. Father Joseph O'Brien, of course. I was also chaplain to the Texas Department of Corrections for 18 years in Huntsville. Novella Pollard. I'm the assistant principal here. You know, this is always in the back of your mind. This can happen, but I've worked here longer than any of them. And I, nothing had ever happened, nothing had ever happened. And yet, you know, it could. I mean, Jack Branch. Now, when the siege started, I had worked about a half a month. So it wasn't long. And Aileen House. I'm not a women liver or anything like that, but uh, I've lived a pretty good life. You'll hear from a few of the other civilian hostages later. There had been a bunch of inmate hostages, too. More than 50 guys who were just at the wrong place at the wrong time. Some were students in Novella Pollard's class. Others were studying under Jack Branch and the other teachers, or they were doing research in the law library. Carrasco realized that he and his two sidekicks could never control that many hostages. So, he made a decision. Carrasco would release nearly all the inmates in exchange for 15 pairs of handcuffs and a TV set, a deal that prison warden Hal Husbands was happy to agree to. Husbands failed to mention the TV was useless in the library, which didn't have cable. 
It was too far down the road from TV stations in Houston to pick up a signal. Father Joseph O'Brien supervised the release of the inmates five at a time. That left just five other inmates, all of them volunteers like Steve Robertson, who opted to remain as hostages. There's some good dudes. Uh, come on. <laughs> I sympathize with them. Uh, I wouldn't in on it, but I'm helping them, you know. Carrasco spent most of the afternoon and evening in the thick of negotiations with warden husbands. If husbands promised not to charge the library, Carrasco promised not to harm the hostages. In a weird way, Husbands trusted Carrasco. And normally, one of these old thugs, when they give you their word, their word's pretty good. So I, I've always got along good with, with somebody that, that if they give me their word, I give mine. I keep mine, they keep theirs. And it works good that way. So. Carrasco also demanded walkie-talkies and new clothing, which husbands readily agreed to and bulletproof vests and helmets and three military-grade semi-automatic rifles which husbands declined to provide. Not even his guards had that kind of protection or firepower. Meanwhile, Carrasco's sidekicks, Rudy Dominguez and Ignacio Cuevas, are waving their guns around, terrifying everybody else in the library, and firing shots that barely missed prison guard Bobby Hurd. Matter of fact, I come within an inch several times of getting my head blown off. Just because y'all are waiting, you know, and it's, it's serious and they're not playing. So do what you can and do it quickly. Key players from the prison system and law enforcement began to flock to the office of Walls Unit Warden Hal Husbands. They included an FBI agent named Bob Wyatt and TDC director Jim Estelle, who'd been giving a speech to a Rotary Club in San Antonio when he got the call. Estelle immediately flew back to Huntsville. Estelle did not want to speak to Carrasco directly, preferring for Warden Hal Husbands to keep the phone lines open. That would eventually change. For now, Estelle was calling the shots from behind the scenes. This is Jim Estelle from a recorded interview on the first night of the siege. You'll hear the prison system director being interviewed by a reporter from United Press International, a news service, who called in from New York. Okay, uh, I'm turning on my tape now. Um, could, I'm sorry, could you give me your full name, sir? W.J. Estelle, Jr. E-S-T-E-L-L-E. Uh, uh, regarding demands uh, from Carrasco, um, do they still want uh, the walkie-talkies and the three bulletproof helmets, helmets from you? Of course, his ultimate demand is uh, freedom. But... Uh, in an effort to gain that freedom why they have asked for six bulletproof vests so that they could be covered, uh, each man uh, ostensibly to wear two so that they would be covered front and back. They want three walkie-talkies. They want three bulletproof helmets. They want three rifles with ammunition and suitable civilian clothing. What is the mood uh, at the penitentiary now? Would you say it is calm? Oh, you bet. Uh, we went through our regular evening meal. No problem. The rest of the inmates understand the situation. We're in a holding pattern at this time. Uh, up to this point, why uh, the warden has 
been extremely open, frank, and honest in his dealings in this situation, as have the captors up to this point. And, uh, strange as it may seem, why there's a certain impressive degree of trust between them. We're going to do everything we can, certainly, to protect those hostages, everything humanly possible to protect them. At the same time, we're I think the, uh, the captors recognize what position they're in. One of Fred Carrasco's attorneys, a lawyer named Ruben Montemayor, heard the news of the siege on the radio. Montemayor called the prison and volunteered to help any way he could. Warden Husbands was skeptical. It sounded to him like another lawyer looking for free publicity, if not some kind of inside job. That night, though, Director Estelle decided to bring him on board. Montemayor hopped on his private plane and flew from San Antonio to Huntsville. For the remainder of the siege, he would be right there in the thick of the negotiations. Hello, Fred. Hey, Ruben. Este, I'd like to talk to you later on. Uh, I'd like to talk to you despacio when everybody's come down, everybody's rested. Let me know more or less what time you want me to go. Just man to man talk, friend to friend. The drama was still high. Everyone could feel it especially Carrasco. He was still hyper-paranoid that prison officials would try to bust into the library and kill him. Every half hour or so, he would order the hostages from one corner of the library to another, always on the move so the prison officials on the outside had no idea where the hostages were located at any moment. Carrasco was still in control, but even he was feeling the heat. There's no way they're going to move in on they, they, they've assured me and assured me and assured me that nobody's going to get hurt. Nobody, uh, they won't fight any charges against you or against anybody. And if, if you would just call it quickly, <laughs> you know, they're uh, concerned about the, about the women. They're concerned about the people. No. And I can understand. Made up your mind, Fred? Yeah. Ruben Montemayor then handed the phone off to the prison system director. It is incredible that all of these calls were taped. You have hundreds of these recordings that really show the minute-by-minute negotiations. Though the old tapes are crackly and sometimes a little warped, they absolutely tell the real story of what was happening at the time. Initially, Jim Estelle had wanted all the calls to go through his warden, Hal Husbands. But Carrasco and Husbands weren't really getting anywhere. They had more or less reached a stalemate. Estelle felt it was time for a different approach. Fred? Yes, Mr. Estelle. Mm-hmm. Now, now, I have an understanding that uh, you all have considered to meet my demands by tomorrow morning. We're making every effort to do that. It's just as Ruben told you. Because these people will not be harmed in no way. <coughs> this I assure you. Okay. But the thing is that uh, the sooner the demands are met, the sooner they can go home. I understand. And uh, afterwards, if uh, I get caught and I get killed, I mean, that's uh, a different story. No, don't talk like that. But that's about it. Yeah. 
Okay, but everything that uh, Reuben has told you is like it is. All right, uh, I want to talk to the people so that they can rest assured. Uh, wait just a minute. Hello, this is Novella Pollard. Are you going to let us out? There is no, not going to be any effort to rush that building. There is not going to be any trouble on our part whatsoever. We're making every effort to uh, uh, gain the materials uh, that they have requested. I wish you'd hurry, really. I understand. It's a terrible strain. I know it is. You just hang in there. But you are going to do it. We're making I mean, we can go on that hope that we're going to get out. Yes, ma'am. Estelle was lying. From the get-go, he'd accepted that some innocent lives would be lost. But he would never let Carrasco go free if he could help it. He was just biding his time, delaying for as long as possible, meeting some of Carrasco's demands while stalling on others. Carrasco was also prepared to wait. He had plenty of food that he'd purchased from the prison commissary and hid all over the library before the siege even began. But Jim Estelle had something Carrasco didn't. Dynamite. Standoff is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was written and created by me, Wes Ferguson. Executive producer and story editor is Jason Hoke. Audio editing and sound engineering by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. Original score for Standoff by Max Baca, with additional music from Flaco Jimenez on accordion. Music engineering by Tony Gonzalez. Our main theme, Huntsful, is performed by Ray Benson and was originally released on the Merle Haggard and the Strangers 1971 album, Someday We'll Look Back. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Carrasco audio tapes from the Texas Department of Corrections, courtesy of the Texas State Library and Archives Commission. Special thanks to the staff of the Texas Prison Museum for their generous help with research materials. The Corridos, La Muerte de Fred Gomez Carrasco, El Nuevo Corrido de Fred Gomez Carrasco, El Corrido de Rosa Carrasco, and El Corrido de Alfredo Carrasco are published by San Antonio Music Publishers Incorporated and are courtesy of DLB Records. Special thanks to Eastside Music Studios in Austin, Texas. Have questions? Contact us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you love the show, tell your friends, and don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks for listening. San Antonio writer Greg Barrios passed away during the production of this podcast, as did William T. Harper, author of 11 Days in Hell. I hope this show honors their memory.
Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen. <laughs> 